last week, whether you were here or not, those of us that were here learned from 1 Samuel 16 that God did a very strange thing that was recorded in Scripture during the time of Saul's reign as the first king of Israel. He essentially left Saul on the throne, maybe for decades, certainly for years, and he made David, he sent Samuel, his guy, this prophet and priest, to go anoint this shepherd boy, the youngest son of eight sons, actually, of a guy by the name of Jesse, and to anoint him kind of the king-in-waiting, so to speak, of Israel. But he left Saul on the throne. I mean, he could have removed him from the throne. There could have been a coup. He could have been killed in battle. All kinds of things could have happened. But God was sovereign. He chose to leave Saul on the throne. And yet the anointing fell to David, which was an interesting situation for the next several years. As Kevin pointed out last week, and this was David's introduction into the story, the story that began in Genesis that concludes in the book of Revelation. This was David's introduction into the story. Uh, David was not only an earthly ancestor of the Messiah. Jesus was in the lineage of David, or David was in the lineage of Jesus Christ. But he was also a forerunner, what we call an Old Testament prototype of Christ, kind of showing us what Christ was going to look like in a way. Both Jesus and David were born in the same birthplace, Bethlehem. Both were chosen by God to be king, one of Israel, the other of the universe. Both had a deep, intimate relationship with God while on earth. And both defeated a giant enemy of God and God's chosen people, albeit in two very different ways. As Kevin pointed out, there are more references and stories about David in the Old and in the New Testament than any other character in the Bible other than God and Jesus. David and Jesus are described in many places in the Bible, and Kevin used this term as anointed, meaning chosen and especially empowered by God. Kevin also pointed out, and I hope you didn't miss this, and if you did, here's another opportunity to get it this morning. I'm going to be expounding on it later. If you have had and are experiencing, salvation is present tense, it's not just past tense, a saving and life-changing relationship with God through faith in Jesus, then you too are chosen, anointed, and especially empowered and filled with the spirit of the living God. As Joel prophesied so accurately hundreds of years before it happened at Pentecost, there would come a day, and we're living in that day where we have access to the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit would fall on believers at Pentecost. The same power, and I'm going to get to tell, I have the privilege of drawing the long straw this morning and getting to tell that story of David and Goliath. Wow, it's an exciting day, guys. We get Gladiator and Braveheart live this morning from the Bible. And, and, and that, that same spirit that empowered that shepherd boy to go out and kill a giant, that same spirit that employed Jesus to heal the sick and raise the dead, it now, if you really know him, be aware of it. That same spirit is pulsating through your body right now, if you know him. More about that in a few minutes. But let's pick up the story where Kevin left off. It gets a little weird before it gets cool, okay? So I'm going to pick up the more difficult part of the story. 
1 Samuel chapter 16, beginning in verse 14. I'm going to read down through 23, and then we'll stop and talk about it in a minute, and then we'll go on to David and Goliath. And let me say this about 1 Samuel. Uh, most Bible theologians believe there were several authors that contributed to the book of 1 Samuel. So we don't know what part of this his- history was written by one guy or, or by another guy. Maybe all written by the same guy or parts of it were. But it's like we're going to get reintroduced to David over and over and over in 1 Samuel. It's always the same. It all fits together. He's the youngest son of a guy named Jesse. And he's got seven brothers. And they'll just keep telling us that over and over. And he was born in Bethlehem. It's like they want to keep telling parts of the story over and over again. So we get it. So you're going to see that happen two more times today. Now the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul. And an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. That has all kinds of theological ramifications that I don't have time to go into this morning, but I am going to do a drive-by on it in just a few minutes. But the Spirit of the Lord is the Holy Spirit. It's gone from Saul, and now Saul's got what I would call demonic oppression, not demonic possession, but he's being oppressed by an evil spirit. Saul's attendant said to him, well, there's this evil spirit that we tell is tormenting you. Let's go... Let us go find some guy that plays the harp, that plays good music, and it'll soothe your spirit, and the evil spirit will leave, and you won't be as depressed, basically. Saul says, okay, go find someone like that. And they start talking amongst themselves, and Saul's hearing the conversation. Well, I know this guy named uh, Son of Jesse, like we hadn't just heard this a few verses before, but from Bethlehem, he knows how to play a harp. Interesting. He already has a reputation before he's ever gone to battle. I guess they've heard the stories about him killing wild animals with his hands and with a knife probably or a spear or something. He's a brave man and a warrior, they speak of him. He speaks well and he's a good-looking guy. And more important than being good-looking or brave, the Lord is with him. That's the biggest deal. Then verse 19, Saul says to the messengers, sent to Jesse, send me your son, the guy, the one that tends the sheep, and so Jesse sends him to be kind of part-time as a minstrel to Saul. Now, Saul probably has hundreds of servants serving in his court. And to him at this point in the story, this is just kind of some no-name kid that comes in and plays music for him occasionally. We know from the next chapter he didn't stay in Saul's court all the time. He went back and forth between the so-called family farm. They, they were Bedouin kind of wanderers, so the family farm consists of lots of land. They didn't own it. They just used it and grazed their sheep on it. But he goes back and forth between daddy and the sheep and his brothers in Saul's court where he plays some music. That's what happens. So he enters Saul's service, becomes one of his armor bearers. Verse 23, when the spirit, this evil spirit would come on him, David would play, bring relief to Saul. He'd feel better and the evil spirit would leave. So we see a mentally ill, depressed demonically oppressed king of Israel and a young shepherd boy playing music for him to soothe him. Comments on the text. Well, let me diverge here for a minute. You were given a handout if you want to pull it out. When you came in, and there's something on both sides. I'll address that in just a minute. And part of that drawing appears as a slide now on the screen. And let me say this about this. We don't fully understand. that. By the way, we didn't do that. I'm not going to take credit or blame for it. That's Neil Anderson. Uh, he's written a lot of books about spiritual warfare. I think it's a pretty good drawing, but we don't fully understand. It's just an attempt to explain things we don't fully understand. How the spirit world operates and interacts, say, between God at the top of the realms there and us down here on earth. 
that mean demons and angels. We see glimpses, though, of it in lots of passages in the Old and in the New Testament. Let me give you three examples. You can look them up later. Job chapter 1, Satan appearing before God, talking about someone on earth. Daniel chapter 10, principalities and powers, the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece, which are high-ranking demonic forces. Luke chapter 4, where Jesus actually encounters Satan in the wilderness, and they have a discussion about Satan's authority to delegate power on earth. And then Ephesians 6, 12, which tells us, living in the church age, so to speak, after the cross and after the resurrection, that Jim, you're going to wrestle while you're on this planet regularly, I believe, with unseen forces of evil. And that they have some degree of spiritual authority and power. That they were given by their commander, Satan. Who likely, we don't know for sure, but he likely stole some of that spiritual power and authority from Adam and Eve back there in the garden. One thing we do know for sure, and that's Matthew 28, 18. Bank on this one. Jesus who is playing by the rules and offer himself up as a sin sacrifice, took back that authority, he said, before he issued the Great Commission, and he delegates some of that authority and that power to you and I. That we know for sure. And we know for sure we still live on a fallen planet. We live on a battlefield, and we have to interact with these unseen forces, but we have spiritual authority. Jesus says he took the keys of hell and death from Satan, made a public spectacle in Colossians of his authority over them. And we know that. I hadn't quoted Keith Green in at least 30 days, but here goes. Song. I think it captures what I'm trying to communicate. We wrestle not with flesh and blood. When clearly evil comes against you this week, next week, a year from now, and it will, and it's in the form of a person doing things that offend you, terrible things to you, and I'm, I've been dealing with some of that in some of your lives. Terrible, terrible offenses have come against some of you that grieve my soul. It's not the person that happened to be the bear. It's those demonic forces that are coming against you to steal kill and destroy, rob you and your family of life. He says this, our fight is with the one who lost the keys of hell and death to God's most precious son. So that's a little primer on spiritual warfare before we start. Uh, we don't know what God would have done if Saul had truly repented of his pride his arrogance and his rebellion, and sought the Lord with all of his heart as a continuing act of his will. We don't know, but he didn't. Kevin talked last week about the importance of guarding our hearts. That's all we can guard is our hearts, Proverbs 4, 23. And he noted that the condition of our heart to a large degree determines the quality of our lives. Lee and I were at a meeting this week with the elders of Benton County, Bentonville or Bentonville Church, and Nick pointed out something. We've all heard it before. <laughs> Do you know that happiness is directly, inversely proportional to wealth? The Bible says that. In other words, starting at about minimum wage, when you get above the poverty line to start up, the wealthier there you are, generally speaking, the less quality of life you have. Now, this isn't a talk about wealth. 
But what determines your quality of life? Your heart. Guard your heart whether you're rich or poor or somewhere in between. Saul's life was a mess because he did not guard his heart. One thing that is clear also from this text, whether we like it or not, whether we understand it or not, and I don't fully understand it, but I accept it. And you need to too. We live in a very arrogant, rebellious culture, and we struggle with this concept. It goes like this. It's three words. God is sovereign. This is his universe. He created it, and he gets the right to make the rules. And we're playing on his playground, not ours. Second thing that is clear from Scripture, it seems counterintuitive. It seems to run against those three words, but it's also true at the same time. And I can't fully balance it, but I've got to embrace this too. It's a great truth from Scripture. Jim, your choices, like Saul's choices, like David's choices, have consequences. Our choices have consequences in this life and in the one to come. I don't fully understand what the writer of 1 Samuel means when he says an evil spirit sent from the Lord tormented Saul. But I get this. It sounds like the judgment of God on Saul in the here and now. I do know from Scripture, and unfortunately, I'll confess, I know it from personal experience. I know that when I've sown to the wind, to use a Bible metaphor from Hosea 8, 7, over a period of time, I reaped oftentimes in my life the whirlwind. So what you're seeing in Saul is a continual sowing to the wind with no regard for the consequences. And God promises, Jim, you keep doing that, you're going to reap the whirlwind. And he did. Enough on this passage of Scripture. Now let's go to a better story. David and Goliath. 1 Samuel chapter 17, first three verses. Here's the scene. Let me paint it for you. Two armies are camped, one on a hill to the west, that's the Philistines. One on a big hill to the east, there's thousands on each side. One army, the Philistines, is probably better equipped. They probably have better weaponry than the Israelites. Certainly their champion, the giant, did. He has all kinds of armor and and bronze and and all this other stuff, and probably some of them did too. But no no matter, there's going to be a battle sooner or later. But nobody wants to give up the high ground. There's this big valley or plain in between. And if you leave your high ground and charge, they may just look at you till you get up near them and then you're coming up a hill and you're at a disadvantage. So nobody wants to charge first. But two times a day, there's this giant that comes out from the Philistine camp and taunts the Israelites. And also every day, apparently at a certain time, each army would come out and do like the kind of the Braveheart scene, make all kinds of noises and, and carry on and yell at the other side. So all that's going on. That's the scene out there at a place called the Valley of Elah. And verse 4, a champion from the Philistines named Goliath, who was from his hometown Gath, comes out of the Philistine camp. Apparently, he said, the text says he was over nine feet tall. That's tall. And he probably could have done well in the NBA. But he does well because he holds up, apparently, most historians think, maybe even 100 pounds of armor he's got on, and his spear may weigh 10 to 20 pounds. Verse 8, he would start taunting the Israelites. Here's some of the things he says. Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? You're not the servants of Saul? 
choose somebody. Let him come down and fight me. If he wins and kills me, we'll be your subject. If I win, you'll be our slaves. So he's trying to cut a deal. We'll save thousands of people's lives if we'll just have this one-on-one fight out here in the middle. But the problem is nobody wants to go fight this guy. And he's got an armor bearer with him that's probably a little bit short guy, about five foot tall, and, and uh, that runs out in front of him holding a shield, and that guy's not armed apparently. And, uh, and he is a pretty intimidating-looking figure. And he says this, this day, verse 10, one of his taunts is, I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. Now, we're going to see later when David kills him, he's not going to keep his end of the bargain. They're not, the ones that are alive. They're going to take off running for home rather than want to be the slaves of the Israelites. And uh, every time he would come out, he'd come out twice a day for 40 days, the Israelites would cower down in fear, kind of back up on the hill and stop grunting and just be scared. So would Saul. They were dismayed and terrified, it says in verse 11. Now, David, for the third time in two chapters, gets introduced into the story. It's a similar type of introduction. Verse 12. Now David was the son of a guy by the name of Jesse who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Eight kids. He's the youngest. The three oldest are camped with Saul on the mountain. And they're fighting with Saul's troops. And David, it says in verse 15, went back and forth from his service in Saul's courts where he was one of his singers and musicians attending his father's sheep at Bethlehem. Verse 16, 40 days this guy would come out and taunt morning and evening. Verse 17, Jesse says to his son who's now back at the family farm, back there taking care of the sheep, got a job for you, David. I want you to go take some grain to your brothers who are fighting, take them some food, give it to the guy that keeps all the provisions. Apparently they were organized and kept food stock label for whoever Family brought him food, and he says, then take some cheese to the commander so he'll basically treat my boys right. He doesn't say that, but that's why he's doing it. And, and he says, there was Saul in the valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. Bring back some word that they're okay. Verse 20, early in the morning, David loads up his donkeys and the provisions, and he heads for the battle lines. He gets there. Just as he gets there, it's one of those times when the army's doing their war whooping and crying. And the Israelites draw up their lines facing the Philistines. David leaves his things with the quartermaster, the keeper of supplies. Verse 23, as he's talking, out comes the giant to do his taunting. And he steps out and he shouts his usual defiant remarks. Verse 23. Verse 24, same response we've already heard about. The Israelites get scared and kind of back up. Verse 25, they start talking around David. They're trying to talk somebody, apparently, into going out there and fighting this guy, and nobody wants to do it. And so the king keeps upping, apparently, the reward. He, I guess he's up to now. He'll give a bunch of money, a daughter in marriage, and exempt the father's family from taxes if you go kill this guy. And so verse 26, David says, what would you say? <laughs> Loose paraphrase. Did you say what? You, yeah, that's what I said. So they tell him again. And then he issues a famous line in verse 26. And wow, you can feel the, the courage. You could call it arrogance. <laughs> Unless you kill a giant with a rock. Then it's not arrogance. You could call it arrogance or pride. But here's this young shepherd boy. He just shows up on the scene. And apparently he sees the battlefield differently than all of his brothers and Saul and the Israelite army. And he says this when he sees this Philistine. Who is this no-named 
uncircumcised Philistine that he should be defying the armies of the living God. Great line to open the scene. So they tell him again who he is and what will be done for the guy that kills him. Now his brother shows up. And this is how, stuff like this is how you know the Bible's real. I mean, here's this older brother, little brother thing. Now think about it. The older brother has already seen this religious guy show up with anointing oil and go ask for the shepherd kid and tell him he's going to be king. That would create a little bit of jealousy, you think? And now he showed up with food for the older brothers who are doing all the fighting. And he showed up and he's asking questions. He's acting like he's going to go out and kill this giant. And he says to his younger brother, I know you're conceited and I know your heart is wicked and you just come here to watch the fight. Listen to this line from David. This sounds so real. What have I done? Can I even talk? Verse 29. Verse 30. He just turns away from his brother. Now what do you say is going to happen if I go out and kill this shit? So finally he makes so much racket that they go tell Saul. Saul says, bring him to me. So Saul hears from David. David says to Saul, verse 32, you don't have to lose heart. Don't have to be afraid anymore. On account of this Philistine, your servant, meaning him, I'll just go kill him. I'll go fight and kill him. Saul says what you and I would say, you're not going to go kill that guy. You're just some, you know, late, teen guy or you're just an adolescent you're a young man and you haven't had a lot of training that guy's old he's a seasoned warrior plus he happens to be a giant and he's got armor you're probably not going to kill him you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him verse 30 source yeah I am you see I've already killed a bear and a lion with my bare hands and probably a knife or a spear or sword or something when they tried to attack my family sheep And I know that I couldn't do that, he says. But he says, the Lord delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, verse 37. And he'll deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. He knows the Lord's with him. So Saul says, what the heck? We might as well try this. Go and the Lord be with you. (laughs) Verse 38. He gives him his own tunic, and there's all kinds of theories about why he did this. Quite frankly, I don't buy into any of them. I think he was just saying, here, take some stuff and go, go do it. And he gives him some armor, his own armor. And, and David says, and tries it on. Ah, it doesn't fit. doesn't feel good. i got to fight with weapons I'm used to fighting with. And so he takes his shepherd's staff in one hand, verse 40, goes to a stream nearby, picks out five smooth stones, puts them in the pouch of his shepherd bag. That's his ammunition bag. <laughs> and he takes his sling in his hand. And he goes out to battle to approach the giant. Now, Josh Graber gave me this thing. And I thought I could at least demonstrate a sling. I wasn't going to throw it. Sling for you, but I'm scared. I'm only going to hold it because I tried to sling it one time in my office. Hit a machine in my office and knocked it off my desk. About broken. So I'm not going to try to even swing it around. But apparently it looks something like this, this weapon David had. And quite frankly, a lot's been made of it. But let's talk about that just a minute and the importance of the rock and the sling and all that other stuff. Let's pick up the conversation because it's really cool. Verse 41, the Philistine sees him coming. He's got his shield bearer in front of him. He keeps coming closer to David and he looks and he sees that it's just a kid. 
and he's kind of some clean-cut, good-looking kid. And he says to David, my dog, you're coming out with the sticks, meaning the shepherd's staff. And the Philistine starts to curse him by his heathen or his pagan gods. He says, come here, boy. I'm going to give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And now David starts to speak. And this is prophetic. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin. But I come against you. What? With my shepherd's staff and my little rock? No. No. It didn't matter. I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I'll strike you down, and I'm going to cut off your head. And today I will give the carcasses of your Philistine brothers, this army behind you, to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. And why? So that the whole world will know that there's a God in Israel. And all those who gathered there will know that it's not by the sword or the spear or the staff or a slingshot or anything else that the Lord saves. For the battle belongs to the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack, David ran right toward him, slung one rock, hit him in the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell to the ground. I'm sure the armor bearer's going, a kid just killed this giant with a rock, I'm out of here. And he's gone. And so David goes and he takes the sword from the Philistine's sheath, finishes him off, cuts off his head, sorry girls, with the sword. The Philistines saw their hero was dead. They're running down the backside of the mountain. All of a sudden, with a dead giant and a screaming kid out there on the battlefield and the Philistines running off the backside, the Israelite army's got a lot of courage. And so they cross the plain, take off after the Philistines, pursue them all the way to the giant's hometown and the gates of some place called Ekron, and they slaughter them all the way, probably hundreds and thousands of them. And then they return back to their camp and plunder the Philistine camp, all the supplies they left. David, meanwhile, takes the head, and this is talking about something that's going to happen in the future, and eventually he probably <laughs> seasons the skull because years later when this happens, he eventually takes it to Jerusalem. But he puts the Philistines' weapons in his own tent. Meanwhile, immediately, Saul, I don't know if he's having a memory lapse, he's mentally ill, or he's just playing dumb or wants more information about this kid, but he asks, starts asking now, tell me more about this kid. And, and as he's running out, he turns to his commander as they're watching this battle. And he's hearing David say these things, Abner, whose boy is that again? And he says, I don't know. Now, Abner hadn't been in the courts and heard him playing music. He's been out on the battlefield. He says, I ain't got a clue who it is. Sure as you live, O king, I don't know. The king says, find out more about who the young man is. In verse 57, as soon as he returns from killing the Philistine, Abner takes him holding the head in front of Saul, and he says, I'm the son of your servant Jesse from Bethlehem. That's a great story. I love the story. What thoughts can we say about this? First of all, if there's a skeptic sitting out there, like I would be if I were sitting out there, it's going, this giant thing, is that just not an exaggeration, Jim? Let me give you some extra bits, just this little tidbits, this is freebies, to support the idea that there were giants in that place at that time, and this is historical evidence and archaeological evidence outside the Bible. 
Archaeology, by the way, has done more to validate the Bible stories than anything else in the last hundred years. Here's number one. An Egyptian letter on papyrus dated back to the 15th century B.C. describes Canaanite warriors of seven to nine feet in height. In November, second bit of evidence, in November 2005, the name Goliath, which was a family name, was found written on a piece of pottery in an archaeological dig generally regarded to be the location of the ancient city of Gath, Goliath's hometown. Wow, the Bible's true. Number three, two female skeletons nearly seven feet tall dating back to the 12th century B.C. were discovered at an archaeological dig in the same region. Next thing I would note from the text, again, there was a big contrast between what God and David saw when the giant came out to taunt and what the Israelite army and Saul saw. Point. Fear can greatly affect our perception of reality. Next thing to note, David had a deep personal love relationship with God. Therefore, Goliath's insults offended him deeply because he loved God deeply. Again, David is a forerunner, as Kevin taught us last week, an Old Testament prototype of Christ, who later on in the story, later on in history, a thousand plus years after this, will come to earth, and I'll talk more about this in just a few minutes, will fight a much more important battle, a cosmic battle against those evil forces that were coming even against Saul, led by an evil rebel angel who also commands a large demonic army that is camped in and around this planet and engaged in a war as well. David recognized, next point, that this was not his battle. And that his best weapon was not really a sword or a spear or a sling. His primary weapon, he said, was the most powerful being in the universe. He had a relationship with that being. This star-breathing God, he knew him intimately and passionately. So, in your battles, 1 John, with the world, the world system, your own sin nature that you inherited from your ancient ancestors and the organized forces of evil that oppose you, is God your primary weapon? Let me put it in defensive terms. When crisis comes in your life, when cancer comes, when divorce comes, when someone's betrayed you, when a child is struggling with rebellion, when you lose your job, whatever it is, when the blows of life come, Is your first line of defense to go to God in the crisis? He's your best ally. He's your best weapon. God is always our best weapon in a fight. Next thing to note, David's faith was well formed before he faced Goliath. He had spent countless hours alone in worship before this, pondering the great questions of life as he looked up into a night sky every night keeping those sheep. Filled with the wonders of an almighty creator that he engaged regularly in passionate worship. God had empowered him to kill wild animals that attacked his family's sheep. And God had delivered him from death. David had a history with God at a young age. Let me say something I like to say a lot. Somehow, those of us that come from evangelical traditions 
have been given a bill of goods in one area. And I'm just going to say it. David, let me just read this sentence and see if it resonates with you or if it bothers you. Yes, David knew what knowledge he had of the Word of God. And I want to know this book better than any of the room. I'm not saying that I do, but I want to. And I read it every day of my life. And I cherish the truths that are in it. And it's under attack right now. And I treasure this word and I put it in my heart. And that's very, very important. And David knew the oral traditions and the words that he had had access to also. And he was trying to live out the ethos of heaven as best he could. And you ought to and I ought to too. But there's something else about the Christian life that I want you to miss. His faith had been forged in the fires of experiential knowledge of God. And experiences with God are not bad words, folks. You ought to have an experiential history with God. And if you don't, start one now. Engage this great God in a supernatural and spiritual way. David, before he fought the giant, had experienced God personally. He didn't just know about God. He wasn't just trying to do good and not do evil. He knew God intimately and personally. Lastly, God wants all the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, even the Philistines, even the giant, even Saul, even David, even you, even me, to acknowledge something. It's Habakkuk 2.14 and Isaiah 11.9. This earth and this universe is full of the glory of God and we need to know and be aware of it and give him credit for it. Another story, a greater story. I've been alluding to it. Let me just tell it. First of all, in 1 Samuel 17.45, if you want to look at that, if you have a Bible or I'll tell you what it says. Remember this part of the story. As David marched out to battle, he announced to his enemy and to the troops that were behind him and in front of him and to the angels and the demons that were watching that he came in the name of the Lord. The literal translation, and quite frankly, the NIV usually blows it and King James gets it right, is Lord of hosts. You know what the translation literally is? I come in the name of the Lord of angel armies. I come in the name of the one who commands the forces of heaven. It's battle language. Psalm 118.26 is a messianic song. The Israelites used to sing it at their festivals for centuries, looking forward to the day that Messiah would come, and they sang it the day he came. The refrain goes like this, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Thousands would sing it centuries later. As Jesus Christ, the so-called son of David, descended a mountain, the Mount of Olives, on a donkey to engage the real enemy, not just a Philistine giant, but a spiritual giant in mortal combat. As all the angels and the demons in the universe watch this battle, the Israelites sang that day what? Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus Christ's victory over the enemy of our souls is much more impressive than David's defeat of Goliath. You know the story. God in the form of an ordinary man 
laid aside his godly powers according to Philippians chapter 2. I have no idea what fully that means. And he came to earth 2,000 years ago and he was born to a teenage virgin Jewish girl and he grew up in an ordinary first century Jewish home, lived a sinless life and then he spent three years validating his origin, his deity, validating he was who he said he was, their Messiah doing miracles and teaching. Then he allowed himself to be separated from his heavenly father according to a script that he and his father had written and offer himself up as a sin sacrifice and suffered the wrath of God, the judgment of God on the sins and the rebellion of Adam's race. He was ridiculed, shamed, tortured, and executed. And he laid down his life in battle, and it was in battle. That's what was going on in that garden before he went to that cross. So that you and I might be reconciled to God and saved. And he said he came to destroy the works of the devil and to ransack the house of the strong man. And he did it. He made a public spectacle, Paul says in Colossians, of his authority over them. And he ripped the keys of hell and death from the enemy. And he took it back. And he rescued all of us who will humble ourselves and admit Boy, this is not popular today, that we're all sinners and that we need a Savior. And we're unable to save ourselves. And we're not looking to our ability to keep rules or do good. We only be saved by looking to Jesus' sacrificial death. It's our only hope to stand before a righteous God someday, justified and declared righteous. And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. As Paul said, when her heart was full of this great truth and experiencing the depth of God's affection for him. And God is affectionate towards you. He is. He said this, Thanks be to God who gives us the victory, 1 Corinthians 15, 57, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Two applications. First of all, for those of you that know him. If you know him, I would encourage you to do what Lee and I encourage you to do Every time we stand up here nearly, give him your heart every morning, every day. Ask him to fill you with his Holy Spirit. Don't quibble with me over theology. I know you've got the Holy Spirit if you know him. But don't you want the Holy Spirit to exude from every ounce of your being every moment that you can? Ask him to fill you with his Holy Spirit each morning and live your life in a way that the world knows that there's a God not in the heavens but in you. And when you walk into a room, a manifest presence of the living God walks into the room because you bring him with you when you walk there. And walk in the authority that's been given to you as his child. And participate with him in tearing down the strongholds of the enemy that are left on this planet. And bring glory to the way you live your life, the words you speak, the way you spend your money, who you hang out with and the things you do. And engage him regularly in worship, as David did, and learn to love him passionately. Second application for a few in this room that might not know him, like David did, or like I do. I'm not ashamed to say it, many of you do. It starts by announcing publicly that you believe the story. You believe the story and you're willing to bank your life on it. You want to acknowledge that you are separated from God by your sins and your rebellion. And you embrace the sacrificial and victorious death of Jesus Christ in order to be reconciled to God. Jesus asks you to do one more thing. You know, be to him. 
that marks you, as it's marked Christians for 2,000 years, to be immersed in water. We call it baptism. It's a symbol that you belong to him. And maybe you've made those decisions, you belong to him before, but you've never taken that last step of obedience. And I unashamedly, I ask that you consider going home, as I always like to say, wet and obedient rather than dry and disobedient. And be baptized this morning. We had somebody do it last hour. It's not a huge deal. Just come up here and do it. You can get in your car wet. It's okay. We've got towels. It's a beautiful day for it. But right now, let's just stand and engage God, our great God in worship. Prayer team, come on up. If you want to be baptized, go see a member of the prayer team. Lee or I can do it or anybody. If you want someone else to do it, they can do it. We don't care. There's a baptistry up here. If you want to be prayed for for any reason, go get prayed for. Go pray if the Spirit's prompting you over someone else. Communion is available around the room. We take it each week to remember his death until he comes. Let's worship him.